Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. You jumped right into that. I did. <laughs> I was just sitting here. Doo -doo -doo. Yes. <laughs> oh, we're recording. I need to get you more things to doodle with because you like to doodle while we I doodle talk. while we talk. Yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll use some donut money to get you a uh, a notebook. We have actually a ton of notebooks here that... I'll just give you one to use. I'm the Alpha Getty Doodler. <laughs> the Alpha Getty. There is an actual uh, serial killer called the Doodler that oh. we should probably cover at some point. Okay. You, you might like that story. Maybe it's me. <laughs> I doubt it. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, Family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On March 26, 1997, police found the bodies of 39 members of a religious UFO cult known as Heaven's Gate in an 830-square-meter home in Rancho Santa Fe, a San Diego suburb. All, including the group's leader, Marshall Applewhite, had died in a ritualistic act of mass suicide. The headline on the cult's website, which remains online today, stated, Hailbop brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Over the following weeks, as investigators probed what happened in the home, the story of the Heaven's Gate cult emerged, each detail weirder than the next. I wrote about this story in part three of my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. I have always wanted to cover this on Dark Poutine. I've expanded on what I wrote in the book, especially toward the end of the story, I get into more detail about the victims. The medium of a podcast allows for other content, including audio clips from individuals involved in the case and other details I was unable to convey in the book, including a Canadian connection. 
That's right. Heaven's Gate is not an away game. It should go without saying, but trigger warning, the following episode deals with group suicide. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 234, Away Game, Heaven's Gate, UFO Death Cult. Human beings have always been fascinated by what we observe in the night sky. We've been giving names and meanings to the twinkling shapes overhead for thousands of years. Rare sightings of objects in the sky, like comets, were considered to be bad omens, a sign that the gods were displeased. Ancient civilizations blamed comets for many misfortunes, including plagues, crop failures, fires, and the downfall of empires. Our scientific understanding of astronomy has been a more recent development. With the advent of more powerful telescopes and other means of analysis, we understand that a comet is simply a massive, dirty ball of ice hurtling through space on a predictable orbit around our sun. As a comet approaches the sun, it begins to melt and gases and dust trail behind it, creating what is commonly called a tail. Even with all the scientific knowledge available, in 1910, when Halley's Comet was due to pass, some people were fearful about what might happen when it came close to the Earth. Many worried people bought comet insurance and anti-comet pills from con artists who had whipped them into a panic, claiming deadly gases from the comet would envelop the planet and destroy those who left themselves unprotected. But Halley's Comet passed then, and again in 1986 without incident. Independent of one another, in July 1995, two astronomers, Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, discovered a new comet with a 30-kilometer, 19-mile radius. It was much larger and brighter than Halley's Comet, and in May of 1996, the newly named Hale-Bopp Comet became visible to the naked eye. As Hale-Bopp made its way across the night sky, people with unusual beliefs came out in droves. Some of them believed Hale-Bopp was a special message to the universe, while others felt it was a sign that otherworldly beings were visiting us. Also in 1996, as Hale-Bopp was high above the Earth, the comet became a popular topic on the late-night radio host Art Bell's nightly talk show, Coast to Coast AM. Bell broadcast from his double-wide trailer in the high desert in Pahrump, Nevada, not far from the mysterious and storied Area 51 that Matthew and I just recently <laughs> visited. The nightly program was an excellent place for supernatural and paranormal nerds to get their fix of weirdness. Art Bell's show covered conspiracies around the Hale-Bopp Comet on multiple programs. One of the call-in guests on Art Bell's show on November 14, 1996 was Chuck Schrammick, an amateur astronomer, conspiracy theorist, and radio announcer on KTRH out of Houston. Among his many weird beliefs and conspiracy theories, Schrammick claimed the government was performing experiments on humans using chemtrails from aircraft. He was also a moon landing denier and once reported that Jackie Onassis was secretly married to Captain Kangaroo for almost 12 months. Oh. It, I know this makes you crazy, this yeah, stuff. Well, it's, you know, 
there's so much energy that's spent on this ridiculousness. Yes. Right. But in the meantime, we have real world issues out there that need to be addressed. Yeah. Like climate change and things that are like clear and in front of us. Yes. Uh, and that could actually be resolved if people took them on. Mm hmm. Um, you know, volunteer work, political action, voting. Right. But instead of any rationality, we have people sitting at home buying into this stuff. Yeah. And pedophiles in the basements of pizza parlors <sighs> in Washington, oh, D.C. Yeah. Art and his guest, political science professor Courtney Brown, a proponent of remote viewing, talked with Schrammick about a photo he had taken that evening, which he claimed showed a Saturn-like object near the comet. Schrammick claimed that the government's lack of public photographs of the Hale-Bopp comet indicated they were hiding something they felt might disturb people. According to his observances, Schrammick felt the object could be three to four times the size of Earth. I remember seeing the comet. Did you see it when it happened? I was working at night. I was driving for a security company at the time and listening to Art Bell as I was driving. And I remember looking out and seeing what, what the comet. What year was this? 1996. I think yeah. I was in Moscow. Oh, okay. I don't think I saw it. Hmm. Yeah, I saw it many nights. It, hmm. was, it was really a fascinating sight in the sky. Art and Professor Courtney Brown looked at the photo and stated that others in their community reported seeing a similar thing near the comet. Brown said that he and three pairs of remote viewers began probing the anomalous object. Brown claimed the remote viewers saw a humongous vehicle near the comet that was under intelligent control and contained both natural and technological structures. He further claimed a message was being sent directly to a main guy on Earth from beings in the object. That main guy could have been President Clinton, but Brown and the remote viewers were not sure. The vehicle, the professor said, was on a mission to awaken humanity to a new level of consciousness. The mainstream media picked up on the story, and expert astronomers from NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab went to work debunking the photos while conspiracy theorists cried cover-up. Art Bell had Schrammick back on the show on December 6, 1996, this time with alleged UFO abductee and author Whitley Strieber. He wrote Communion, the book Communion, and uh, also the terrible movie. They spoke again about the object near the comet and insisted the government was trying to suppress the important information they felt the masses were entitled to know using circular reasoning to reinforce their claims with the show's audience. Hale-Bopp and its companion became regular fodder for Art Bell's show over the next few months. I remember listening to it all. People came out of the woodwork with wild theories about the object they perceived near the comet, while others claimed to be deciphering messages coming from the extraterrestrials who were riding aboard the object. One of the people following the story closely was Marshall Applewhite Jr., the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult. He was obsessed with the story. Applewhite believed the message from the alien craft was the one he and his group had been waiting for. According to Applewhite, he was the main guy the beings were referring to, not Bill Clinton. Applewhite then began to formulate a plan that would ultimately lead him and 38 of his followers to take their own lives. The chatter from Art Bell, his guests, and the conspiracy theorists on the internet perfectly fit Applewhite's belief in a coming apocalypse. In the months leading up to Art Bell's show on Hale-Bopp, Applewhite had released two videos that he had transcribed and posted on the Heaven's Gate website. These videos 
featured a wide-eyed Applewhite staring into the camera and warning that Earth was about to be recycled. He said he and his group would be leaving soon and implored others to do the same to save themselves. Next, we'll play some audio of Marshall Applewhite made in the months prior to the mass suicide. There are three parts, after which Matthew and I will discuss what we've just heard. Here's the first part. We're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us. We'll title this tape, uh, Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. Now, that's pretty major statement, pretty bold in terms of religion, in terms of anybody's intelligent thinking to most people who would consider themselves intelligent beings that say, well, that's, that's absurd. What's all this doomsday stuff? What's all this prophetic stuff? You know, intelligent human beings should realize that everything has their cycle. They have their season. They have their beginning. They have their end. They have cycles. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another human civilization. So what are your thoughts are on that so far? I wrote down one word, we, and it's him saying all this. There's no we, but he's saying we to create that idea of groupthink, like right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. He's using typical marketing tactics. Okay. Yeah. Right? And he sounds a little bit like a used car salesman. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the we thing that's, you know, I actually, when I try to do marketing, I try to use the word you more than we. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about a brand because you want it to be person-focused. Sure. So, yeah, he's just using typical marketing tactics. Yeah, it is definitely. I mean, he's an interesting cat. I mean, in the video, you just see him and he's staring straight into the camera. And as I said, he's like wide-eyed. He looks insane. He looks like a crazy person. <laughs> Did you know that um, there was tests done years ago and women's magazines mm -hmm. where the person is staring at you yeah. out from the front page get more purchases than ones that don't? Yeah, that makes so sense. So if you have a human looking yeah. at you in the eyes, mm -hmm. more people buy. Because you're connecting. Yes. Yeah. Because it's a deep animal psychological thing, right? And he's also using like age old religious ideas about uh, the cycles of things and all those kind of things. So this is what cult leaders do. They use familiar language to lure you in like little seeds of things that you're already familiar with and you already believe in. Mm -hmm. to make it more attract. Oh, interesting. Oh, he's, mm, he's connecting things for me. Anyway, let's listen to part two of the tape. It's just another minute and 30 seconds here. 
Now, the reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization, because it's about to be recycled, but because of where that finds us, where that finds you, where that finds those who would judge us, how we would speak of them and how they would speak of us. Now you say, you keep saying us. Who do you think you are? Well, I, in all honesty, must acknowledge my father. My father is not a human father. My father is a member of the evolutionary level above human, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. My father gave me, long before this civilization, gave me birth into that kingdom level above human, that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God. Now you can say, well, I can't believe that. Well, it's up to you whether you believe that or not. That's not important to me, even though I wish that you could believe it for your sake. For those who do believe it stand a possibility of a future beyond this recycling time. He just set himself up as Jesus. Yep. Right? The exactly. God, the Father. Yep. Me, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, okay, let's play the next part of the okay. tape. <laughs> Interesting that you would pick up on that. Now you say, well, according to religious literature, I thought there was someone else that was going to come and be our Savior here at these end days. That that was going to be Christ's return. Well, the name Christ might be a little confusing, or the name Jesus, because the name Jesus, of course, of course was the name given to the body that that mind that was indeed from the kingdom of heaven came and that mind was here 2,000 years ago and that mind came for the express purpose of teaching humans how they could be saved, how they would not be plowed under at the end of the age. Well, we're at the end of the age. So the one or the mind that was in Jesus, what? That mind is in me? You'll have to decide that for yourself. I must admit that I am here again, that I'm here saying exactly the same thing that I said then, trying to say it in today's language, trying to hope that for your sakes you can see what we have to offer you, for our Father offers you life. Not talking about human life. Do you see he corrected himself there? Yeah. He, he almost said I, and then he was flip, flipped it to we again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to listen to this guy, mm. because he says, you have to figure it out for yourself, whether or not I'm Jesus. And then he goes on to make statements as though he were. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. was born on May 17th, 1931 in Spur, Texas to Marshall Sr., a Presbyterian minister, and his wife, Louise. They were a devoutly religious family. Marshall Jr. wanted to follow his father's footsteps and became a minister himself, obtaining a degree in philosophy in 1952. 
Applewhite later pursued a master's degree in music from the University of Colorado and then embarked on a career in academia. Even though Applewhite was married, he struggled with his sexuality and had numerous affairs with men over the years. He and his wife divorced in 1968, much to Applewhite's and his family's shame. Then in 1970, Marshall was fired from the University of Houston and his life spiraled downward over the next year. After the death of his father, Marshall Sr., in 1971, depression overtook Marshall Jr. He reached out for help and checked himself into a psychiatric hospital. It was there that he met his spiritual partner, a pediatric nurse named Bonnie Nettles. Applewhite and Nettles shared spiritual and philosophical views and bonded over their mutual interest in UFOs, biblical prophecy, and paranormal subjects like spiritualism and reincarnation. Marshall and Bonnie began spending all their time together, reading scripture and talking about religion, the occult, and the paranormal. The two had been through a lot of trauma in their lives, and although they were not sexually intimate, there was a strong connection between them. Soon they began to believe they were on earth for some divine purpose. They felt their next-level minds had been given to them to carry a message to a fortunate few who would follow them as they fulfilled biblical prophecies. You and Morgan aren't going to go down this path, are you? No. <laughs> not even remotely. The odd couple began calling themselves the two, after the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation. Once out of the psychiatric hospital, the pair rented a car using a stolen credit card and took off for Canada, another Canadian connection. They traveled across this country spreading their strange message of salvation. While traveling, the couple was caught and convicted of credit card fraud. Well, that sounds very spiritual. Which earned them each a brief stint in prison. So in short, the cult was started by two delusional convicts with a god complex. Well, they weren't just convicts. They were people who had been in the mental hospital. And a self-loathing homosexual. Right. With the time afforded him in prison, Applewhite redefined the basis of his New Age theology. He decided he was a higher life form than the other humans he dealt with daily. Of course he was. He believed he was sent to Earth from beyond the stars by a divine entity. He began to talk about aliens and UFOs, prophesizing that someday soon a sign would appear to prove his divinity. He and his followers would then be taken in a spacecraft far away from the backward folks on Earth. To transcend their lowly existence, Applewhite and Nettles took on a series of paired names. They called themselves Guinea and Pig, Nincom and Poop, Bo and Peep. The monikers they finally settled on paid homage to Applewhite's musical education. They decided to call themselves T and Doe from Rodgers and Hammerstein's timeless classic song, Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music. Applewhite would be Doe, and Nettles was T. I think I'm going to call them Dill and Doe. Dill and Doe? Yeah. They might have even gone by those <laughs> monikers at some point. Over the next few years, Applewhite and Nettles began gathering followers through speaking engagements on the subject of human individual metamorphosis, which attracted New Age believers from all over North America. The group used a recruitment poster as a selling tool for their lectures in 1975 and 76. Documents preserved on the Heaven's Gate website succinctly encapsulate the focus of their talks. Applewhite and Nettles discussed UFOs, why the two of them came to Earth, and when they would leave. The couple claimed they had come from a level above human and took human physical form to educate the people of Earth about how and when they would be able to ascend to the next level themselves. 
They claimed they did not represent any religious organization and were not recruiting members, although they invited anyone interested in physical realms beyond their earthly existence to attend. So it's like, we're not recruiting, but we really are. Mm -hmm. When Applewhite and Nettles acquired a convert, they would pair the person with another believer and send them off to preach to the others, helping them spread their message farther and faster. After gathering a core group between 1975 and 76, Applewhite and Nettles ordered the followers into seclusion to prepare for their mission. Applewhite told members they could not communicate outside the group, especially with earthbound family members who would distract them from their ultimate mission. Isolation from friends and family is a classic tactic used by cult leaders to remove outside influence and brainwash followers. And for Applewhite, it worked very well as a way to control his group. In 1985, Bonnie Nettles died of liver cancer. Applewhite told the rest of the group that T had chosen to go on ahead. Her vehicle had broken down and had been left behind. He assured the group she would be there to welcome them when it was time to go. From that point on, Applewhite was the sole leader of Heaven's Gate. Over the next 12 years, the Heaven's Gate followers remained secluded, giving Applewhite ample time to brainwash them further. In 1992, they produced a series of videos called Beyond Human, The Last Call, which they hoped to broadcast via satellite TV. The videos outlined their mission and were meant to attract more members to their group. The theories postulated in the videos contained a mix of weird philosophy, pop psychology, science fiction, and odd interpretations of the verses from the Book of Revelation. In the introduction of the series of videos, the group claims to call itself Total Overcomers Anonymous because of their desire to overcome all aspects of the human kingdom. On October 23, 1993, while trying to attract the numbers required for their final mission, the group published a pamphlet titled Total Overcomers Classroom Admission Requirements. The pamphlet made it clear that Applewhite expected total commitment from anyone who joined the group. This pamphlet is full of red flags for anyone who has an understanding of how cults work. Some of the most concerning passages, including the following. Potential members were to obey without question. Initiates were told they had to relinquish personal possessions because they would not need them anymore, that personal items would hold them back spiritually. Those possessions, of course, were turned over to the cult. Past relationships and connections with family and friends had to be severed prior to joining the cult with Applewhite citing the same reasoning. Initiates were assured that their families would be looked after by the higher beings in the next level. So I think those are red flags, not just for anyone who has an understanding of how cults work, but anyone who actually has the skill of critical thinking. Well, yeah. Because it is a skill, yep, right? Yeah, totally. You have to actually learn to think critically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I see this, yeah, I'm like, you know, I don't know how cults work. But, you know, I'm a critical thinker. Yep. And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. I was not always a critical thinker. I have developed my critical thinking skill. Um, I did go and look into Dianetics. I read the book and I was totally enraptured by it because I was looking for something. And I wasn't quite sure how to look for something in a safe way hmm. at that point. So I did go to a Scientology thing in Halifax and all that kind of stuff. Like... But you didn't, you didn't go there. I didn't go there because I wasn't allowed to go there because A, I had been treated by a psychiatrist at one point, mm -hmm. and B, I didn't have enough money. 
<laughs> so I would have, had I not been treated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and had I had enough money, who knows, I might have been sucked in at that time. I think beyond critical thinking, I'm, I'd be way too rebellious mm -hmm. and independent to, um, yeah. to, to um, allow anyone to have any control over me. Let's just say from the time I was a teenager until I finally sobered up, I would have been susceptible to this kind of thing, very much so. Interesting. All addictions, physical or psychological, were to be left behind because they were of the human world. The suppression of sexual desire, an area where Applewhite himself had struggled mightily, was paramount to the group. Applewhite arranged for a Mexican doctor to surgically castrate him and seven other men in the group to assist in their goal to remain celibate. Members were also discouraged from adhering to a specific gender, which Applewhite said did not matter in the next level. All members of the group began dressing in a similar androgynous way and even adopted similar hairstyles, which were really shitty. They looked like Captain Kangaroo. On the plus side, mm -hmm. with the men castrated and this commitment to celibacy, they're not bringing any children into the madness. Well, sadly, a few of them had already had children that they had left behind to join the cult. And we'll get into that when we learn about the cult members themselves. Upon joining the group, followers had to rename themselves, essentially erasing their past lives and identities. They adopted bizarre names, all ending in ODY. Applewhite claimed their new names were more befitting of space travelers. <laughs> Marshall Applewhite was now in complete control of his followers, because they allowed him to be. More after a quick break. Okay, Matthew, we're back. What are your thoughts so far? You've been excited to voice this one on me, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> because you know I, it, it gets my, uh, my ire up. Yes, it definitely does. Because, uh, and we'll talk a little bit, I think, at the end about cults. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad you actually added something in there, right? Like, he did take control, but they gave it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and um, there's a really big discussion that neither you nor I would probably get to the bottom of, of victimization or not. Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, I think there are different kinds of cults. Right. This one is a tough one because you, you don't want to judge somebody who is led down the garden path and ends up the way that these people end up like I, I, I don't feel it's my p place to judge them. Mm -hmm. I, re I really don't. But at the same time, I know everything after but is bullshit. I feel like exactly like what you've been talking to me about this whole morning, that these people chose to listen to him. Yes. But what is your capacity at the time you make that choice? I think that is the important thing. Because my capacity was definitely tainted when I was choosing things back in the day, because I was involved in some weird stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm a bit more of a rationalist than you are, I think, yeah. in some ways. Mm. I'm, I'm definitely a dreamer. And I'm a bit more of a old school, pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of person. Yeah, I'm definitely not that. Right? And, yeah. uh, oh my God, you shouldn't hear what my husband said just as I was leaving the door when I told him about what we're doing today. What did he say? How did he put it? I have no feelings for people who get themselves into that nonsense. There's enough humans in the world anyway we can do without some of them. Oh dear, that's, that's cold. <laughs> 
In January of 1997, after hearing about Hale-Bopp and its companion object on the Art Bell Show, Applewhite began planning for the group's departure. That same month, one of the group members, a man named Rio D'Angelo, known as Neodi, felt compelled to leave because he had work to do in the outside world before embarking on the journey to the next level. Okay. D'Angelo became a web designer and stayed in contact with the group via email. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me jump in here, Mike. What? He felt compelled to become a web designer? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was a web designer. Man. I know there's nothing wrong with being a web designer, but like, like you know, the cult and like the afterlife. Oh, but, but no, that was but how I'm they compelled to be a web designer. They had surrounded... Apple White had surrounded himself with people who were computer savvy yeah. be because it helped him to get his message out. That's what all their websites were about. But the website is hilarious. It's so 90s. It's still up. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> so D'Angelo stayed in contact with the group via email. He never entirely cut off contact. And that left 39 members of the cult consisting of Apple White and his 38 recruits. Of those remaining with Applewhite, 21 were women, 17 were men, ranging in ages from 26 to 72. Despite the fact that reputable scientists had quickly debunked the photos on Art Bell's website that claimed to show Hale-Bopp's mysterious companion, Applewhite carried on with his plans. The cult members began recording their goodbye messages on video and prepping for their departure. Their faces in the video seemed joyous, and their parting words were thoughtful. A public message was also released on the Heaven's Gate website. Quote, Whether Hale-Bopp has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member, in the evolutionary level above human, the Kingdom of Heaven, has made it clear to us that Hale-Bopp's approach is the marker we've been waiting for the time of arrival of the spacecraft from the next level above human to take us home to their world in the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. See what they've done there? So I have my marketing hat on, right? Yes. And I can see sort of, okay, you've launched something. Yeah. You've launched a brand. You've launched a message. Yeah. You've got an insight or some new information that you missed before, mm -hmm. i.e. the companion spaceship isn't there. Right. And so what, so you scramble and the committee says, okay, we have to like do a message. We or, have to address okay, this. Okay, we'll address it. Well, it's relevant or not from our perspective if it's actually there. That was like the fundamental element of the story. And that. But the, now they're saying that Hale-Bopp is the fundamental element. Yeah. Uh, that brand's going to fail. Okay. Well, it, it did. Hale-Bopp would travel closest to Earth on March 22, 1997. So on March 21st, the group celebrated their impending graduation with their last meals. As the comet glowed in the sky above them, the group ordered identical takeout meals from a nearby Marie Callender's restaurant in Rancho Santa Fe. They feasted on turkey pot pie, blueberry cheesecake, and iced tea. Now, I do like me a good pot pie, Mike. Mm -hmm. And yeah, blueberry cheesecake, even though I prefer raspberry, my favorite thing. Yeah. Right? But feasted and last meal, I, I would have like, since it's the end of my life, I'd probably have a little glass of sauterne and some foie gras mm. and maybe some, all the, have you ever noticed all the really yummy food 
Yeah. Like, is the cruel food. <laughs> yeah, like veal. <laughs> and yeah. foie gras. Yeah. What would you have as your last feast? My last feast would probably be maybe some prime rib. Mm. I really like me yeah. some prime rib, some uh, garlic mashed potatoes, just really, really smoothly whipped mashed potatoes. With um, lots of butter and lots cream. Lots of butter and cream, yeah. some uh, some mushrooms. Maybe maybe we'd have some snail to start. I like escargot. Some, yeah, I like, like me some escargot. Uh, but for dessert, the biggest ass piece of chocolate cake that you chocolate? can imagine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yep. You know what came up in my Facebook memories yesterday? What? It was three years ago that I made you that saffron poach pear. I love that pear. Yeah, that was a good one. I think I'd have that as my last dessert. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, we digress. We digress. Back to... I'm hungry now. Yeah. Back to people who do themselves in. No longer privy to all that was unfolding at the house, Rio D'Angelo became concerned when he hadn't heard from anyone in the group on Monday, March 24th, 1997. They were always prompt to reply to his emails. And that's when he began to suspect that his friends might have moved on to the next level without him. Two days later, Rio's fears were confirmed when he received a FedEx package that contained a video and a letter. The letter, later released on the Heaven's Gate website, said, By the time you read this, we will have exited our vehicles. D'Angelo left work and went to the house in Rancho Santa Fe, knowing what he would find there. Holding a shirt doused in cologne to guard against the strong smell of death in the house, D'Angelo entered, recording on a video camera the eerie sights as he went from room to room. He later claimed he was envious of the group, who had all completed their missions. I wonder what cologne he used. I don't know. I bought a new cologne. I ordered it yesterday. I saw that. Marquis de Sade, uh, Attack the Sun, it's oh, called. Interesting. Yeah. Every member of the Heaven's Gate cult in the house was dead. Each of them was found lying on a bed or cot face-up dressed in identical long-sleeve shirts and black sweatpants. They all wore black Nike shoes with white highlights and the swoosh logo on the side. Each person wore an armband with a patch that read Heaven's Gate Away Team. It was later determined that the group had worked in shifts over three days to complete their group's suicide. Two groups of 15 people, one on Saturday and one on Sunday, took their lives first. On Monday, the last nine members of the group ate a concoction laced with between 50 and 100 phenobarbital pills and vodka and placed plastic bags over their heads. As each group of people died, the remaining followers removed the plastic bags from their heads and put purple shrouds over their faces. After his discovery, D'Angelo made an anonymous 911 call. Dispatchers received the call at about 1.30 p.m. And we have about 16 seconds of that call here. Hello? Yes, um, I need to uh, report uh, uh, an anonymous tip. Who do I talk to? Uh, okay, this is regarding what? And, uh, this is regarding a mass suicide, and I can give you the address. So he goes on to give the address. It was marked as a welfare check, so it isn't considered a high-priority call. Deputies didn't respond until about 3 p.m. after another call came in from Beverly Hills Detective Sergeant Mike Corrin. Someone, either D'Angelo or his boss, called the police too. Ensenada Sheriff's Deputy Robert Bunk 
arrived at 18241 Kalina Norte and discovered the 39 bodies. There were no signs of forced entry into the residence, no evidence of struggle or violence, and none of the bodies showed any signs of traumatic injury. They were just lying there, face up on their mattresses and cots, throughout the house, including all seven bedrooms. Later, at a news conference, deputies Robert Bunk and Laura Gasek said that the scene seemed eerily serene. Do you remember those photos? Yes, I, I absolutely do. And there, there was a serenity to them, mm-hmm. oddly, because everything matched, right? But it's one of the most famous cultural images, right, of yeah. the 90s is is the, the picture of the legs with the Nike shoes underneath the blankets, right? Yep. And uh, I read that when I was preparing for this, that Applewhite actually liked Nikes. And there was a saying in the cult, just do it instead of just do it. Oh, dear. They, no, they actually use that. I'm not, this, I'm not making a joke. Yeah, I know. And um, I guess Nike had gone, to, went into crisis mode. Like, they didn't actually respond to... To any calls for a comment, but what they did was they quickly and quietly discontinued the line. Mm-hmm. And now you can actually—I looked it up today. Yeah, on eBay, um, <laughs> Google super rare mint condition Nike Decade Heaven's Gate sneakers size 15 for five thousand sixty-two dollars and twenty-two cents Canadian plus seventeen dollars and seventy-nine cents shipping. You'd think they would throw the shipping in for five grand. <laughs> you know. Wow. And it's size 15. Yeah, like who who has those size flippers? It's like, oh, li- Nike is for Bigfoot. I'd like to meet them, though. <laughs> oh, dear. As well as their odd makeshift uniforms of black Nikes with the white swoosh, black sweatpants, and long sleeve shirt with the Heaven's Gate Away team patch, there were other strange similarities. From FBI documents, quote, All bodies had short hair and a gold band on the left ring finger. Each body was accompanied by a passport or other identifying documents. The statistics of the victims reported early on by San Diego County Sheriff Bill Colander and the county medical examiner. 21 women, ages 28 to 72, 18 men, ages 29 to 66, two blacks, the others white, possibly some Hispanics. Most were in their 40s, one with a Canadian birth certificate, The rest had U.S. birth certificates or U.S. driver's license. There were 10 with New Mexico driver's licenses, 9 with Texas driver's licenses, 4 with California driver's licenses, 4 with Colorado driver's licenses, 3 with Arizona driver's licenses, 3 with a Utah driver's license, 1 with Washington driver's license, 1 with Florida driver's license, an Ohio driver's license, and 1 with a Minnesota driver's license. There was one international driver's license and one with no driver's license, Marshall Applewhite. So he couldn't drive a car. (laughs) We'll name the victims later and give a brief biography of each, expanding on, of course, the Canadian victim, a woman named Erica Ernst. This is again from FBI documents. 37 bodies were partially draped with triangular pieces of purple cloth. The top point of the triangle covered the head of each body, with the other two points extending coverage from the shoulder to shoulder. The arms of these corpses lay by their sides, and each body had an individual small tote bag alongside, containing various personal items. Two female bodies had plastic bags covering their heads, with their hands clutching the bottom of the bags. And so these two were presumed to be the last to have exited their vehicles, dying by suicide after the other 37 did their thing. Each of the 39 decedents 
had identification on their body to include such items as individual social security account number, driver's license, passport, and date of birth. In the northwest bedroom of the house, investigators from the San Diego Sheriff's Office discovered several cups containing an orange liquid accompanied by pill bottles with the labels partially scraped off. Preliminary tests indicated that the liquid contained Vicodin, a painkiller that contains a combination of acetaminophen and hydrocodone. And hydrocodone, as we know, is an opioid or narcotic pain medication. Acetaminophen, although a much less potent pain reliever, increases the effects of hydrocodone when the two are combined. So it wasn't like a Jim Jones thing. Mm -hmm. People weren't shot, didn't have a gun held to their head. No. They actually all died by uh, agreeing to suicide. That's that's correct. Okay. Um, And because they believed what Applewhite had told them, Mm -hmm. that they were moving on to a level above human. The sheriff's office recovered numerous letters and other writings, videos, both tapes and digital, pamphlets and photos. According to the FBI, all of the writings pointed to the same belief held by the group, that the human body is a shell, and at some point in life everyone must decide to move to a higher plane to transition to a higher level of existence. Several computers were inside the residence, including one which bore the following screensaver feature. Red alert, hail bop, heaven's gate. From CNN, quote, Inside the house, investigators found a document that may shed light on the way the suicides, which appear to have occurred over several days, were organized. Labeled The Routine, the document outlined a process by which a group of 15 people would kill themselves, assisted by eight other people. Then a second group of 15 would die, also assisted by eight people. Given that 39 victims were found, that would have left a final group of nine, end quote. It did not take long before the media caught wind of the story and news helicopters began buzzing around the house as police carried out body after body. The names of the 38 victims finally came to light. I say that there are only 38 victims as the cult's leader, Marshall Herf Applewhite, was author of the mass suicide. In all probability, none of the others would have died by suicide at that time were it not for Applewhite's delusional preachings. The people who died were not lunatics, far from it. They were everyday folks who were looking for a better life. Applewhite somehow was able to convince them, as is the case with many charismatic cult leaders, that his way of life would be the way of life that would save them. The dead were John Mickey Craig, 62, a real estate developer. Craig was known as Ethereal Brother Logan and was Applewhite's trusted second-in-command. He left to drive another friend to meet Applewhite and Nettles at an airport in 1975. He never came home, leaving behind his bewildered wife and their six children. He took with him their vehicle he was driving, a Chevy Blazer, a single change of clothes, and the cash he had in his pocket. The couple were divorced in 1977 after having never spoken again. He did meet his children for a brief visit in the mid-80s, but some of his younger children did not remember him at all. Julie Montagne 45, was Marshall Applewhite's personal nurse. She joined the cult in the mid-70s, after her father died of cancer and her best friend drowned. After joining a number of communities along the east coast of the U.S., she met Applewhite. She was lost to her family soon after. Judith Rowland, 50, left her family suddenly after being recruited into the cult by her mother Lorraine, who later left. In 1975, 
After having been married for nine years, she left her husband and two children behind without warning. Bob, Judith's husband, who'd also briefly been involved with Applewhite and Nettles, came home to find a note that read, I have gone to walk with the Lord. Judith was one of Applewhite's most loyal and longest followers. Michael Barr Sando was a 25-year-old ex-paratrooper who'd served during Operation Desert Storm, the United States' first skirmish with Iraq in 1991. Sando had grown up in Abingdon, Virginia, was a class president of his high school, and was very well-liked, straight-laced, but fun-loving. His death by suicide and involvement in the Heaven's Gate cult was shocking to everyone who knew him. He'd only recently fallen under Applewhite's spell. 43-year-old Gary Jordan St. Louis was a computer programmer who'd grown up in Modesto, California. He'd been the junior class president of his high school, Downey High, in Modesto. He was a seeker, and that natural curiosity led him to explore the existence of UFOs as well as astrophysics. Also one of Applewhite's early followers, he dropped out of Berkeley in 1974 and joined the cult with his brother Guy, who then left. Gary's family didn't hear from him until 1989, but then it was only briefly. Gary's former girlfriend, Shelley King of Hayden Lake, Idaho, received a videotape from him explaining his decision to board a spaceship to a higher place. I want everyone who may see this to know that I have chosen to leave, he said. I want to rejoin my Heavenly Father and my classmates, the students of my Heavenly Father. Gail Renee Mater, 27, grew up in Sag Harbor, New York, and after graduating from community college with a fashion design degree, moved to California in 1991 with her boyfriend where she opened a boutique where she sold jewelry and clothes. After meeting and becoming enthralled with Applewhite in 1993, she left her boyfriend and her business behind and joined the cult. Her family last saw her in the group's goodbye video. She said, What we're about to do is certainly nothing to think negatively about. Darwin Lee Johnson, 42, was a musician who played guitar and sang in a Utah-based rock band called Dharma Combat. For his whole life, he had been fascinated by UFOs and aliens. He joined the cult in 1994 after attending a seminar. 58-year-old Thomas Nichols was one of two black cult members who'd been with Applewhite and the crew since the 1970s. Nichols was the brother of Nichelle Nichols, who passed away recently. She was best known for playing Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek series. In an interview on CNN's Larry King Live soon after the mass suicide, Nichols said that her brother had very little contact with his family in the years since he joined the cult. My brother was a highly intelligent and beautiful gentleman, she said. He made his choices, and we respect those choices. She said that several years ago, her brother and some of the other members of the group had contacted her asking for information on how to get their message out to the public. They asked me what I thought would be the best way to let the world know what they were about, she said. They talked about a great comet that would come someday. Susan Elizabeth Nora Pop, 53 had gone to Berkeley where she majored in English and later went on to work as an editor for a computer company. In 1975, she and her husband traveled to Oregon where they met Applewhite and Nettles. Pop's husband left, but she stayed on. Her mother, Jane Bradford, had only seen her daughter twice in the 22 years since Susan had joined Applewhite's cult before learning of the suicides. Norma Jean Nelson, 59, an artist who'd been wheelchair-bound since a childhood bout with polio. She lived in Dallas, Texas when she joined Applewhite in the 90s after leaving her husband and three kids. Joel Peter McCormick was 28 years old. 
He'd been living in Seattle trying to make ends meet as a masseuse after leaving Madison, Wisconsin, where he'd grown up loving Star Trek. He was disillusioned with life and desperate for answers when he met Marshall Applewhite in 1994. Just before his death, he wrote to his mother saying, Trust me, I'm doing fine and continue to grow toward the future. Margaret Ella Richter, 46, was class of 1969 valedictorian at Las Plumas California High School. She was a talented public speaker and loved marching with the high school band as a majorette. Even though she had graduated from UCLA with a master's degree in computer science, she seemed to be struggling mightily with life. She thought she'd found her answers when she joined Applewhite and Nettles in 1975. The year before she died, she wrote to her family for the holidays saying, quote, here's hoping I get a UFO trip for Christmas. Susan Strom was studying botany at Oregon State University when she met Applewhite in 1975 and dropped out to follow him. She'd always led her family to believe she was happy. Her parents and six brothers and sisters were shocked at her suicide with the group. She was 44. Joyce Angela Scala, 58, had grown up in Minnesota and had married an officer in the U.S. Navy. And they had two little girls. She went to work as on-air talent at a Tulsa, Oklahoma TV station after earning a journalism degree. She left everything behind two days after attending a seminar put on by Applewhite and Nettles. Jacqueline Leonard, 72, had been a medical assistant in Des Moines where she and her husband Charles, an optometrist, were raising three children. Jacqueline always had an interest in religion. She left the family to follow Applewhite in the mid-1970s. She was awed in the fact that she'd stayed in semi-regular contact with her family, unlike most cult members. She talked a lot about what Applewhite was teaching her, but never about the possibility of suicide. David Moore, 40, at the time of his death, had been fed up with the world when he met Applewhite in 1975. He was just 19. He left his home in Los Gatos, California, breaking ties with his family, who only saw him twice in the next 22 years. He'd become a certified computer network engineer and did work for the cult. Cheryl Butcher, 42, had grown up in Springfield, Missouri. Classmates remembered her as smart but very shy. She worked as a computer trainer and joined the cult in 1976. Cheryl's mother, Virginia Norton, recalled a letter from Cheryl after she'd been following Applewhite for years. It said, Quote, Mother, be happy that I'm happy. Another time she ended a letter, look higher. David Cabot Van Sinderen, 48, was an environmentalist who came from a wealthy family. His father had been CEO of New England Telephone. After seeing a flyer for the cult in 1976, he attended a seminar and joined right away. The last time he'd seen his family was in 1985 at a family reunion to which David brought another member of the cult for, quote, an extra set of eyes. Quote, While we did not completely understand or agree with David's beliefs, it was apparent to us that he was happy, healthy, and acting under his own volition, end quote, family statement said. It continued, He always tried to reassure us not to worry about him. He dealt with us honestly, and we respected his wishes. Mary Jane Peggy Bull was 54. She'd grown up on a farm in Ellensburg, Washington. She joined the cult in the 70s. Her brother recalled thinking the whole thing sounded harmless. He continued, But when we received a video from Peggy that had Applewhite declaring himself the second coming of Christ and that he intended to lead his flock to redemption, I got a real bad feeling then. End quote. 
Suzanne Sylvia Cook, 54, joined the cult with her husband Nick after leaving their 10-year-old daughter with friends explaining to their daughter by way of a tape recording that they were in pursuit of a higher purpose. Nick, an artist, left the cult in the years before the suicides. Suzanne stayed on. Nick later told People magazine that Suzanne had taken the, quote, final leap of faith, I think she's probably on the mother craft somewhere, end quote. Jeffrey Howard Lewis was a 41-year-old masseur who'd spent time in the Navy. He spent 12 years in the cult, having joined in the 70s. He went back home to San Antonio for a time, but Applewhite's pull was too strong. He eventually returned to the cult that he felt was the only thing that had ever given his life meaning. Lucy Eva Pesho was a 63-year-old computer trainer. She grew up in Pueblo, Colorado, where her family said she'd been a, quote, tomboy. She'd been working for Hewlett-Packard in L.A. when she found the cult in the late 70s. Her family worried about her, but she called her sister Jean in 1989 saying, I'm alive and I'm happy. Yvonne McCurdy Hill was 38, a U.S. Postal Service employee and the second of two black cult members who died in the mass suicide. She joined the cult in August of 1996 with her husband Steve leaving their children behind with family. Steve soon felt something was very wrong and left the cult. Yvonne had stayed on. Steve had tried to extract Yvonne from the cult until her death with the group in March 1997. Lindley Earhart Pease was a 41-year-old car salesman who'd grown up in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. He joined the cult in 1978. Like Jeffrey Lewis, he'd left the cult for a time, had gone back to school, and even gotten married. In 1994, he divorced his wife and cut off contact with his family. His sister only learned of Lindley's return to the cult after being notified of his death. Robert John Arancio was a 45-year-old artist who was born in Brooklyn, New York, but soon moved with his family to Miami, Florida. He met Applewhite and Nettles in the 1970s when he was attending Berkeley University in California. He told his family that he'd considered leaving the cult, but never did. LaDonna Ann Brugato, 40, was a computer consultant who was into New Age thought and was a spiritual seeker. She sold everything and left Newburgh, Oregon to join the cult in 1994. In cryptic letters to her family, who had no idea where she was, she claimed to be a traveling minister. Raymond Allen Bowers was 45 years old at the time of his death. Before joining the cult, he'd worked as a commercial oysterman. He was depressed after his brother drowned in 1988 and never quite recovered. His wife divorced him and he too, like many of the others Applewhite preyed on, was searching for something when he met the wide-eyed but compelling cult leader in New Mexico in 1994. He left behind three children. Denise J. Thurman was 44 when she died with her fellow cult members. She'd dropped out of Boston University and then headed west to join a commune. She fell in with Applewhite in the 1970s in California. The last birthday card she sent to her college roommate read, Dear Sandy, there is no purpose to friendship other than the deepening of one's soul. Alfonso Foster, 44, a bus driver from Minneapolis. He was a spiritual seeker who read voraciously about philosophy and metaphysical subjects. He was known to have expressed his disappointment with this world and was looking to experience something higher. He joined Applewhite in the cult in 1994 after nothing more than a 20-minute phone chat with the cult leader. Nancy Diane Nelson, 45, had told her co-workers she was a nun living in a monastery with two men who were skilled with computers. 
Although she was a bit odd, her colleagues were shocked to find out she was among the 38 who died with Marshall Applewhite. Dana, Tracy Abrio, was 35 years old. Her half-brother Gary St. Louis was also one of the 39. St. Louis was on a hiatus from the group when Abreu moved in with him while working as a paralegal. In 1992, when St. Louis rejoined the group, Abreu followed. She was known as Eve Nodi within the group. Stephen Terry McCarter, 40, was from North Carolina, from findagrave.com. According to the media, Stephen, a.k.a. Sorodi, was one of the more intense of the cult's members. In the early 1990s, he underwent a botched castration undertaken by one of the group members, Julie Montagne. Both Sorodi and a surviving member named Sawyer insisted on being castrated in order to prevent the body from feeling sexual desires. He was eventually surgically castrated properly. Michael Howard Carrier was known within the Heaven's Gate as Tolodi because of his height. He was a native of San Francisco who encountered T and Doe in 1975 at either Canada College in Redwood City, Santa Cruz, or San Jose. He was a fan of the conspiracy theorist Art Bell and was listening to the show in November 1996 when it was theorized that there was an unidentified object behind Hale-Bopp, who then agreed that this was their signal to exit. The suicides occurred a day after Carrier's 48th birthday. Sadly, there's very little biographical information available for the next four Heaven's Gate members who died with the others. Brian Allen Schaff, 40, was born in California. Brian was the youngest child of three. Little is publicly known about Schaff, whose driver's license indicated a KOA campground in Las Cruces, New Mexico, as his last known address. Lawrence Jackson Gale, 47, was born in Denver, Colorado. Like Brian Schaff, there's little publicly known about Lawrence Gale's life before the cult. Betty Eldry Schiegelberg Deal was 63 when she died in the Rancho Santa Fe Death House. She was from Montana. Gordon Thomas Welch was 50 years old and had been born in New York, New York. This brings us to our 38th and our Canadian victim, Erica Ernst, who was 40 when she died, and she'd acted as the accountant for the cult. Erica was born and grew up in Calgary, Alberta. In 1975, Erica and her boyfriend, Frank Lyford, had just had a major six-week backpacking adventure in Europe. They decided they would continue their journeys along the west coast of the U.S. They met Applewhite and Nettles while they were camping in Oregon. The couple went all in, sold everything, and threw in with a growing cult. Their families heard from them only rarely in the ensuing years until 1993, after a number of conflicts with the group, Frank Lyford was given $1,000 and told to leave. Erica stayed. Frank Lyford, also Canadian, but now living in the U.S., has spent years undergoing deprogramming and personal therapy to extricate himself from the tenderless ideas implanted in his head by Marshall Applewhite. He has been working on a book titled Rekindled Flame from Heaven's Gate to Freedom, My Life in the Heaven's Gate Cult and My Journey Back to Inner Guided Life. Frank is now a personal coach. On his website, Facilitating You, that's facilitating and the letter U, dot com, one of his goals is to, quote, facilitate for others the transformative experience of self-learning and awareness that I have found so valuable. Would you ever go to an ex-death cult member for personal co life coaching? I'd like to have a conversation with them, sure. I mean, it would be fascinating to have a conversation, but it wouldn't be my top choice. Why not? It's like going to somebody who's recovering from alcoholism. Yeah, but I didn't join a death cult. 
No. Right. I don't know. He also left. I mean, he probably has an interesting, yeah, he probably actually has an interesting perspective. Probably a lot to learn from him, but it wouldn't be my top choice. I'd just be a little bit nervous about it. Sure, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So he talks a little bit about it on his website. And so when relating to what led him to join the cult, Frank writes, quote, The knowledge they shared answered many questions I'd held growing up that had never been answered to my satisfaction. However, it seemed that I had a susceptibility to the allure of the cult that most did not. Through patterns I now see that had developed early in childhood, I lacked a strong sense of identity and self. Perceiving what the Heaven's Gate group offered as esoteric and arcane knowledge, I hitched my wagon to their story, so to speak. I sought my identity in them, and they gladly provided. In effect, I yielded my power of choice to the two leaders and to the groupthink of the cult's subculture. I gave them the power to determine the everyday choices of of living my life, of how, what, when, where, and with whom to express, eat, sleep, do, think, and even what to allow myself to feel. The goal the cult leaders espoused for me and my fellow students was to merge as cogs in the wheel for the benefit of the collective, overriding individual preferences and desires, and overruling any personal tendency or necessity for freedom independence, or sovereignty. Our mindset and social construct became that of a hive mentality in which all of us were the worker bees. Every ounce of energy and every thought in our day was focused in devotion to the hive and its sovereign heads. This was framed as training and preparation for taking up membership in the next level, the evolutionary level above human. This was the essence of how I lived my life, for 18 years. So they were the Borg. Essentially, yeah, we will assimilate you. Yeah. Lyford's years of therapy and reflection have brought him some valuable wisdom. He writes, quote, I recognized I had given my power away. I saw I had attributed to the cult leaders a life-governing decision, making capability and permission above my own of seeing them as having an exclusive connection to higher realms and arcane information that I felt only they could provide. I saw I had granted an outlandish faith in them. I came to realize they were just two ordinary people who happened to have an inflated view of their own specialness in the eyes of God. End quote. So this is interesting, mm-hmm. right? He decided to leave. Yes. So he made his choices, then changed his mind. Well, he was sort of kicked out. Probably because he, he was, was making he was, choices. He was making choices, right? Yeah. He made choices, and he talks about making choices, right? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, earlier on, Michelle talked about her brother. Yep. And how her family respects the choices he made. That's right. So um, this is where the whole thing of victimization and... You know, and, uh, you know, it's not, I'm not victim bashing here. No, I know. Because it's a very different thing from like, you know, um, a woman and a couple who's, who's been abused, right? Yeah. To making these sort of choices in a cult. Um, you know, Mike, did they do what they wanted to do? I think they did. As simple as ultimately. that. Did they do what they wanted to do? And yeah. you kind of go, wow, people do that, right? Mm-hmm. At least three former members of the Heaven's Gate cult ultimately died by suicide themselves in the months after the mass suicide event. On May 6, 1997, Wayne Cook and Chuck Humphrey attempted to die by suicide in a hotel in a manner similar to that used by the group. 
Cook died and Humphrey survived his attempt. Another former member, James Perky Jr., died by suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot wound on May 11th. Humphrey, who'd survived his first attempt at dying by suicide, ultimately killed himself in Arizona in February 1998. It seems that peace and nonviolence was clearly not the only thing in their minds. In April of 1997, a month after the suicides, investigators found a cache of firearms, including assault rifles and semi-automatic handguns, in two storage sheds that the group had rented. Well, the bright side of this is... um... You know, they killed themselves and didn't go to some weird place where they're hurting other people. That mm-hmm. Taking others that with them. That didn't make the choice. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. For months after the suicides, the media were on fire with stories about the cult's mass suicide. News organizations obtained the video D'Angelo had made after discovering all the deaths, which was shared online for all to see. Ten years after the suicides, D'Angelo, still a believer released a book called Beyond Human Mind, The Soul Evolution of Heaven's Gate. Now more than 20 years later, D'Angelo and other former members of the group claim they are still somehow in contact with the Heaven's Gate away team. D'Angelo, now with a changed identity and in shadow, told ABC News' Diane Sawyer he doesn't get direct messages from Applewhite and Nettles, but it's more like a feeling. The feeling, so still delusional after what, twenty years? Twenty-five now. He haven't, he hasn't like cracked onto that critical thinking or understanding of what really happened. Some here. people don't. It's incredible. It appears that two former members living in Phoenix, Arizona, operating as the Tele Foundation, maintain the group's website, which is still online. At heavensgate.com. If you want a new front end designer, I know a few that could help you. It's so badly done. Well, now it's now it's a historical document. It, it's Matthew. actually kind of cheesy. It is very cheesy. And, and fun, right? It's yeah. Kind of like retro. Perhaps you're involved in something that may be a cult. There are a number of online sites that can help you, uh, especially those that might determine whether you're involved in a cult or not. One user-friendly test that I found was on the site cult-escape.com, and Matthew and I are going to talk about that in the after show on Patreon. Now, we realize we just talked a lot about suicide, and there is help available if you need it. If you just Google suicide help, it will come up with all kinds of resources close to you. In Canada, you can talk to Talk Suicide Canada, and that's at one 833-456-4566. And the official website is talksuicide.ca. If you are feeling upset or in a dark place, please reach out for help. I know so many people that I wished would have done that. Mm -hmm. Me too. And we'll provide links in our show notes for help. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 234, Heaven's Gate UFO Death Cult. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right. Here is our first voicemail. We had three this week that we're going to listen to. Well, hello, boys. It's little Lacey, the pepper on the protein from last week. Finally got me shout out and I thank you for it. Sorry I was impatient. I should have trusted you boys. Anyway, greetings from Shitterton, where I'm making the mad green on the brown. 
Yeah, I wish. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic that the second Patreon shout-out was from Germany. I can't do a German accent either, Mike, but uh, it was actually a dream I had about a German actor that inspired me to finally become a Patreon, because I'd been thinking about it for a while, and I just didn't know if I could afford it's it. But hilarious. you know what? A buck a month, I can handle. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to call and let you guys know that each new episode you do, I find the quality is going up and up and up. Um, I've been enjoying every episode and each one I keep saying, oh, this is my new favorite. This is my new favorite. And I've been thinking that for a long time now. So, uh, keep up the good work. Keep, keep doing it. My love to all the, uh, the, you know, fur babies, uh, dog, kitty, whatever. And, you know, spouses, Carol and, you know, and I just wanted to let you all know that, uh, I really love the show and I appreciate you guys. Thanks again. Bye. Well, thank you so much. Racy Lacey. Racy Lacey. I love her. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Yes. And I can do a good German accent. I don't know what Matthew is talking her, about. Her accent, her German went into Scottish. Yeah, she was like really went Scottish. <laughs> but she did a good accent at the beginning. You don't do a beginning. German accent. You do an accent of one person. Well, yeah. Right. Like try to do a female German accent. I would not like to do a, a German accent as a lady. <laughs> Now you sound like Werner Herzog and Trying. Uh, uh, well, they're yeah, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't do lady accents because I'm not a lady. Lady, it's definitely not a lady. No, Mister Fartmobile. <laughs> and you sent me that. You fart shame me with the fart. I, I'm balloon. always going to fart shame you. Uh, I am a stinky man. Anyway, uh, here's our second voicemail. There. We were going to play another voicemail here. We thought we had three, but apparently we only have two because the second one, although it sounded like the guy had interesting things to talk about, there was like music in the background. And call, we can, call in next week. Call in next week and turn off everything. Maybe hide in the closet with your phone. <laughs> so like whoever's playing the tunes in the background isn't there anymore. But anyway, <laughs> thank you. Uh, let's listen to our third or third which is actually our second. I'm confused now. The next one. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Sandy calling from Saskatoon. My daughter got me into listening to your podcast, and I love it. I just finished listening to the episodes about David Milgard and Gail Miller, and I just wanted to thank you for doing such a good job telling their story. In listening to your voicemails after the second episode, I heard a caller refer to the Alphabet Streets as Alphabet Land. I've also heard and used the reference Alphabet Soup. Um, Matthew also mentioned that he missed the area when he was here. The streets are located east of White Wild Drive. So depending on where you were, you may very well not have seen them. And something I did notice was your pronunciation of Langenberg. It's actually pronounced Langenberg. Aren't pronunciations of towns you aren't familiar with so difficult? <laughs> anyway, thanks for the great job you do. Have a great day and go shit in your hat. Yeah, I'm I'm done feeling bad about pronunciation. I was telling you it's Langenberg, and you wouldn't listen. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> Matthew is so full uh, of shit right now. Thank you for calling in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, you're so full of poo. Anyway, uh, that's it for voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or... 1877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. 
First up, as far as Patreon goes, we have Adrian Hyde. And Adrian, I don't know where Adrian is from, Matthew. Where is Adrian from? Hyde Park. Hyde Park. Oh, in the UK? Nope, London, Ontario. There's a Hyde Park in... Oh, yeah, you've told me this. Everything's the same. There's the Thames and all Everything's of that. Everything's the same, yes. Yeah, so is the Thames as dirty in Hyde Park in uh, London, Ontario, as it is in... Well, there was a body in it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, dear. Yeah. So Adrian's from Hyde Park. And what does she do in Hyde Park? Is she... Um, what are those puppets called? Punch and Judy. She does, oh, cool. she does Punch and Judy. Shows. That's such a violent thing. I know. It's because close. Punch, like, literally punches punch. Judy. Punch and Judy, yeah. Yeah, that, they, it's but like it domestic. Goes back hundreds of years. Domestic violence. It's hundreds and hundreds it's of like years. Like medieval old. times. Yeah. 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 Well, okay, great. Thanks, Adrian, for doing your really violent puppet show. Well, no, she does. She will go with the theme of everyone calling us a super woke program with oh, a yeah. homosexual on it. I guess there's some like nasty reviews yeah, about they, me. Um, so she's done. She does a woke version of Punch and Judy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. People don't like. Uh, yeah. So yeah, woke woke versions of uh, Punch and Judy are fine, <laughs> but yeah, if it's domestic violence, I don't really kind of want to watch that. Nine, nine. Uh, next thank up, you, Adrian. Thank you, Adrian. And next up, we have Michelle Rankin, and she's from Mount Gravatt East in Australia. She's a nice lady from Australia. Mount, nice lady. She's a Sheila. Mount Gravatt East. Yes. I wonder if what's on the west. I don't know what's in Mount Gravad West, but... Hmm. Uh, well, thank you for becoming a patron, Michelle. Yeah, and um, what does Michelle do there in in Aussie land? She's a Sherpa on Mount Gravad. I wonder if Mount Gravad is actually like a tall mountain. She takes you from east to west. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So someone's got to do it. Well, thank you for doing that. Sherpa. Next up, we have Damien Mockford, and Damien is from Crossroads, Nova Scotia. Damien. Damien Mockford, and what does... I love that his name is Damien. Yeah. And he's from Crossroads, and Crossroads words are evil supposed to pop up. That's correct. Like, that's where, right. uh, uh, what's his name, did the, uh, Daniel Johnson did his deal with the devil at the Crossroads that yeah. gave him the guitar Yeah, so playing. Damien on the Crossroads. Is it, I wonder if he's from, yeah, Crossroads is close to Cape Breton. It looks like it's really, like, sort of really close to Truro. So that's okay. probably where he's from. Okay. My brother lives in Truro with okay. his with his kitties and his wife and his yeah so yeah well the kids aren't really kids anymore they're grown up my my nephew Max is six foot six it really shames me to be short <laughs> why does it shame you to be short well my, I guess they're my half brothers but both of them are over six feet tall <laughs> it's like oh look they're giant versions of me giant versions yeah. of you. Oh. I love those guys. They're good. They're good eggs. I have good brothers. Um, well, anyway, so Damien, what does Damien do at the crossroads, Matthew? He uh, steals souls. Well, good for him. Yes. Somebody's got to do it. Damien, you're a soul stealer. Soul you, you, stealer. You've stolen my soul. Aw. That's nice. You've stolen my heart for becoming a Patreon. Well, he did. Yes. Next up, we have Ka Cassandra Lusher, and she sent us some donut money and calls herself Casey and she's from Nelson, British Columbia. Love your show guys. Kisses for Steve. Nice. Yeah. 
Mwah, mwah, Nelson. Head. And now on Egg and Waffles' head. Egg and Waffles now. Who, who were sitting on Matthew's they, they lap. They sat on my lap. The little kitten sat on my lap today. Yeah, they're really nice guys. And you just got to let them come to you and they will be yes. just great. Yes. So what does Casey, Cassandra, do up there in Nelson? Well, I know Nelson, mm-hmm. even though I've not been there. And I know what goes on in Nelson. Uh-oh. She grows pot. Oh, good for she her. She grows the marijuana. Well, there's a lot of legal marijuana. Absolutely. I've have, thought have, you about, been, have you been to Nelson? Uh, yeah, I've been. I've there. seen photos, and there's some beautiful houses. Yeah, I'd like to check. Yeah, it out. it's a great place. I like Nelson. Next, we have Peter Bagnato, and he didn't tell us where he's from, and his only message was one word: donuts. Are you sure it wasn't like donuts? It it might be like donuts. He's from Springfield. Springfield, uh, Illinois. Donuts. Oh, okay. How does Homer Simpson do that? Donuts. Don't eat. Don't. There you go. Yeah. Thank you, Yeah, I don't do a good Homer Simpson, but I do a good Hank Hill. Who's Hank Hill? From. uh, Oh, that over the hill or what's it called? King of the Hill. King of the Hill. Hi, my name is Hank Hill and... I saw those two boys whacking off on a tool shed like a couple of spider monkeys. I haven't done it for a while. Spider monkeys. <laughs> oh, well. He was uh, first introduced to us on uh, Beavis and Butthead. Oh. So what does Peter Bagnato do in Springfield? Does he work at the nuclear plant? He does. Oh, with Homer. He does. There you go. Uh, and he does not push the button that says, do not push this button. No, he does not. Okay, good. So that's what he does. He polices the button that Homer tends to push. Exactly. Ah, there you go. Well, good. Keeping us safe. Thank you, Peter. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And next we have Adam Grofsick. And Adam didn't leave us a message, and he didn't tell us where he's from, nor what he does. So Adam, what does Adam do? He doesn't do anything, and he's not from anywhere. He's just ethereal. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's just sort of... Well, he's doing something. If he's ethereal, he's around. Yes. He just hangs around. He's present. He's present. So what he does is he's present. Yeah. And he... where? Nobody really knows. It's kind of everywhere. Kind of everywhere. Yes. Oh, is he hanging out with uh, our folks who are in this episode? I Actually, hope not. May... I think Adam could start his own cult. Oh, let's not do that. <laughs> no more cults. Cult bad. Unless it's a good cult. And that's it for uh, Donut Monies and... Cult of Steve. And Patreons. Thank you, folks. You said you wanted to do something for Patreon, but you didn't. I'll do it next week. Okay. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it. So until next week... 
Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Not a, don't be a bad yablica. A yablica? What's a yablica? Uh, Russian for apple. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> the, oh, those Russians. <laughs> showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copycat on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv